Hello and welcome, Friar Town. Today is February 18th, and we're going to be joined by Friar legend Jamel 530-Thomas. I am Billy Ritchie, and this is the Friar Podcast. Hello and welcome, everybody, back to episode 11 here on the Friar Podcast. I'm, of course, your host, Billy Ritchie, and today I'm joined by the man they call 530, number 33, Jamel Thomas. Jamel, we are here recording on the anniversary, your two-year anniversary of you being inducted in the PC Hall of Fame, and we have a lot to cover, so let's get right into it. Jamel Thomas, welcome to the Friar Podcast. Thanks for for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. What's up, Friar Town? We're going to talk about a lot of stuff, so get ready. <laughs> Love it, my man. Well, thank you for joining us. And it is tradition on the Friar Podcast. We we do start off with the same question, and that is going to be, where was your favorite place to eat? What's your favorite Providence restaurant when you were on the team? I would literally go three times a week to Andino's on Federal Hill. You know Andino's? 100%. My mom's from Federal Hill. I, I, I've had that calamari probably over 100 times. <laughs> and I'm allergic to shellfish. And I taste that. I was like, you know what? This is this is really good. And I, I didn't really like calamari when I tasted at other restaurants, but at Federal Hill at uh, Andino's, I mean, I got that with the marinara sauce all day, every day. Absolutely. Absolutely iconic spot. A lot of home cooked, hearty Italian dishes. So great choice there. Love, yes, love that you were able to grub there um, when you weren't playing. And Jamel, let's get right into it, my man. Let's talk about first why you decided to come to Providence College. And let's even take it a step further. So why did you come to PC? And then let's go right into that 96-97 team and how special it was. Well, because Providence is a boring place. <laughs> 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 but in a good way. Right. And uh, I tried to tell the kids that I mentor now that, you know, boring is cool and being corny is cool. Right. It gets you to focus. Absolutely. So uh, I had two schools. I had a lot of schools recruiting me, you know, because of my cousin Stefan. You know, they they want to do like a package deal or whatever, you know, with Syracuse and Georgia Tech and UCLA with Jim Harrick. So but that didn't work out um, because actually his father, he was like, no, you're going to go to school by yourself. So to narrow it down, it came up to Rutgers and PC. So I went on a visit, official visit to Rutgers University. I had a great time. It was unbelievable. 30,000 people there. Uh, a lot of black people there. It was just a party town. I was like, wow, I really had a good time. Mm-hmm. So when I went back home and I, and I told my adoptive mom, I, she was like, how was your visit? I said, oh, it was great. I want to go to Rutgers. Right there off the rip. This didn't have anything to do with sports. It just had everything to do with the life over there. Okay. So she's like, okay, fine. All right. So let's try another school. Let's try Providence College. So I went to Providence College for an official visit. Very boring. Nothing to do. Mm -hmm. Right? It was just school and athletics there. Right? So I went on a visit. I came back home. She said, how you like uh, Providence College? I said, it's boring. I don't. I, I don't want to go there at all. She said, "Well, I think you're gonna go there, right? Because you need to focus. <laughs> you need to focus on your academics, and this this would be a perfect place for you." 
And that's how that came about. It was it was just that simple. So she she kind of made the decision. And um, that was probably the best decision of my life. Because no, knowing what I know now as an adult and how I was when I was younger, mm-hmm. if I went to Rutgers, I probably would have dropped out or got expelled probably by my freshman or sophomore year. Just just the just the rate that they go as far as the nightlife and all that stuff over there. So um, fast forward it sophomore year, we had identity problems throughout my whole sophomore year. You know, um, I came back to school like I, I transitioned my whole game. Um, I was recruited as a four five mm-hmm. um, coming out of high school, so um, I came back as a two guard, right? Shooting a lot of jump shots, training and all this and that. And then I just seen my cousin stuff on already get drafted. So that kind of motivated me, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm thinking going in there, I got to average like 20 and 10, you know, which I did in the beginning, but it didn't work out for team aspect. So coach was just, Coach Gillen was just changing the way I was playing, changing the way uh, Sham was playing. You know, you can't change the way Derek Brown plays because – if you don't run a play for him, he's still going to finish with 18 points. Mm-hmm. He's just always at the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, he wanted us, the younger guys, to play for the seniors, Derrick Brown and Austin. So, we, you know, we were trying to figure each other out throughout the whole season, right? So we knew the year before we were on a bubble and we didn't make it. We went to the NIT. So my sophomore year, we was like, no, no, we're going to the NCAA tournament this year. So – Going into the biggest tournament, we knew that we had to win two games in order to go to the NCAA tournament. So Sham, like the city boys, me, Sham, Corey Wright, Derek Brown, we was like, yo, man, forget that. We can't listen to Coach Gillen. We got to play our game. We're going back home. We had the garden. Let's just go do our thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. Like, we clicked. We finally clicked. With, with Austin as well, we finally clicked, right? Because he's a good shooter. He's not like us, like we're scrappy. We're pressing and doing all this and that. And then we're penetrating, that he's open. We can find him easy for easy buckets, or even if he's setting a pick and roll, drop down to Austin. So we found who we were throughout the Big East tournament. And going into the NCAA tournament, we felt the same way that this is how we had to play. Even though we had that mindset, Austin goes for 40 against Marquette. Like he goes for, like he straight destroyed. So we know that once somebody is going, you you have to go to that guy. We have to play for that guy, right? So it was Austin against Marquette, and it was Dirk Brown against Duke, right? And the best thing about Duke that I tell everybody is that we knew who we were. We we know how to be coached, but we know how to play. You know, uh, that New York City grit basketball as well, because it was four of us from the city on Providence College. So people thought it was a challenge for us to go play inside North Carolina to play Duke in NCAA tournament. We looked at it was like, no, we're going to beat these guys uh-huh. in their backyard. That's the, 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 the mindset that we had going into that game. And sometimes you got to tell yourself, like, you got to envision the game, like, all right, so this is what I told myself. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rebound really hard, play defense as best as I can, and hit my shots and try to make my layups, right? And that's what I did. And Derrick Brown just goes off, right? 
you see, I, there's a lot of passes that I do to Therry during the game. A lot of passes, no looks, whatever, whatever. We had to play for him because he had it going. And that's just how it was throughout the tournament. And Shamgar just ran the whole the the whole offense for us. It was just it was just an, an enjoyable time at that time. Well, I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack here. But to start, like you were six six two fifteen, like you were the definition of what the kids call nowadays a big guard. Like you were, you know, if your ability to, especially when you were a junior and senior, like to shoot like fifty percent from the field, like as a big as a big guy like that was very impressive and. In terms of Derek Brown, probably one of the most underrated friars of all time. Could definitely get it going. And yeah, certainly a difference between New York City and Providence in terms of things to do and, uh, you know, sort of the the nightlife aspect. But you could see in that team, like, you know, the connection that the New York City guys had. It was like really cool. And I remember Sham God was quoted. Um, I, I believe both of you were quoted in saying this uh, in an NBC 10 uh, interview where it was like, we were all alpha males. And like, at the end of the day, like we saw eye to eye on that level. We were like, we all know we're alpha males. So let's go out there and win. Right. That's it. Like uh, nobody had egos. We, we didn't have egos. It, it wasn't an ego thing. It was just, if, if, if it looked selfish, that's just where we come from. Mm-hmm. Right. But we knew how to play together. Like I played with Sham in high school, you know, with uh, my AAU team, uh, the Gauchos. You know what I'm saying? I looked up to Derek, you know, playing basketball throughout high school, right? I knew about Coy Wright when he, when he was playing at Brandeis. Like Coy Wright is like, he's he, he's so good, but he had to play a certain way at Providence. People don't understand how good Coy Wright was. Like he led his team to a championship in New York City, and he's five, what? What what car is five seven five eight? Yeah, he yeah. was he, he was he was, yeah. he was he was definitely on the smaller side. But that's yeah. a great that's a great segue into our next question here, Jamel. So obviously, you played with a lot of talented guys. We haven't even brought up like Ruben Garces, John Linehan, those types of guys. Like, who do you think was the most talented friar that you suited up with? And you know, who are some of the guys that you keep in touch with nowadays? Oh, I, I keep in to get that out the way. I keep in contact with. All the guys I was recruited with, or played with, my at least my first years, from like Ruben to Sham to Austin to uh, Luke Cole, Corey Wright, Jason Murdoch. I, mm-hmm. I keep in contact. Uh, even Pete Sabilski. Remember <laughs> Pete Sabilski? I do. <laughs> he's uh yeah, he's my friend on Facebook. So um, so I keep in contact with all those guys, and you know I think that's important, staying connected. Uh, just like I stay connected with the school as well. Mm-hmm. But who's the most talented Friday that I play with? People are going to be shocked with this one. Okay. Now, we're not talking about who's the nicest. Sham was nice. Yeah. Derek Brown was nice. Austin was nice. Those guys were nice, right? Yeah. But talent-wise, that can do everything, that can do just as much as me, mm-hmm. but probably had a better handle than I did, but just didn't have the confidence, is Ben Perkins. Okay. Wow, I gotta, I gotta, hear, I gotta hear why. Ben, per, in practice, Ben and I used to go at it, right? But he had, he had this, he had this kind of slow handle, and then it was quick, right? A quick crossover. So he had set you up and then quick. So, like he used to catch me with that a lot, right? But he wasn't just. He was able to shoot the ball well. He was able to pass the ball. He was able to rebound and bring the ball up. He probably wasn't able to do that stuff because I was there at the time, but I seen what he was able to do in practice. And he had 
some glimpse, glimpse in games where he had like 20 or 25 points and it was like a Ben Perkins show, right? So Ben 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 was very, very good. And he was big. He was big. He was 6'6". Six, six. Ben was big. See, this is one of the best parts about this show is that you can give glimpses into things that we have absolutely no idea about. And that is that is the perfect example. We had Marcus Doughton on an episode earlier, um, on episode eight. And Marcus Doughton was telling us how Rob Sanders, he believed, was the most talented player on his team. And I mean, that's a team that had, you know, Donnie McGrath and Ryan Gomes and Sheikh Ukaba. So at the end of the day, we love hearing these types of things. So thank you for dropping that knowledge on us. And let's talk about your success. Like, Sixth all-time in scoring with 1,971 points. Leading the Big East in uh, scoring your senior year. You led the Friars in scoring your junior and senior year. Talk about your success. Talk about what it was like playing in that era of Big East. Like guys you like matching up against, you know, and, and how things just came came so easy for you. Uh, well, for Friartown and, and whoever's watching, like younger guys or, you know, you know, players, current players that's watching, like, I give a lot of credit to Joe Hassett and uh, Lewis Orr, right? Lewis Orr, when I, when, I, when I first got into Providence, I didn't set any goals, right? I didn't, I didn't know what a goal was, to be honest, right? I knew, yeah, it was important to graduate high school. Okay, all right, now I'm going to, you know, to college. So Lou Orr sat me down in the office. He was like, Jamal, what's your goals? I said, I want to be All-American by my junior year. I just, I just said it. He was like, all right, so let's work towards it it was just that simple right and it was it was a lot of times um when i used to get into shooting slumps in the beginning of my career joe Hass used to come by you know help me with uh like the form of my shot and and my footwork and my balance you know he was a pro and his energy when he used to come in inside the the gym he was just smiling like hey jay pass the ball hit 10 shots in a row be like this is what you got to do jay Lock your wrist, lock your <laughs> elbow. Like this is what he did. Like he and and I appreciate that because he wasn't like one of the guys that like like try to take you a situ in the corner and be like, why are you playing bad? Or like this is what you gotta do. And like he did it with a smile and he did it with demonstration, right? Actually shooting the ball, right? So and once I got that information, like the goals and how to shoot proper from Joe. I used to sneak in the gym at night, right? I know a security guard there. He used to help me get inside the gym. And I snuck in the gym at night and I put in work, right? And most of the time in the mornings, I used to, you know, get a ride to Brown University and I used to sneak over there to run the stadium stairs. So, it might look easy, but I put a lot of work in it, a lot of work to get where I was at, like my junior and senior year. And um, my my junior year, you know, I had a lot of double teams and triple teams, right? So we had we had a lot of young guys like John Linehan, you know, Ben just got in, uh, TJ McKenzie. So we we had some real young guys. So you know, it just it was frustrating and it was fun, right? So. That just, my junior helped me for my senior year. Now you had to open up because my younger guys got better, right? And I always had Corey Wright with me as well. But the younger guys got better. And then, you know, you couldn't double it as much, right? Because John was confident. You know, Ben was confident doing his thing. So, but I, I remember it was a lot of guys that played against me 
like from UConn and <laughs> Notre Dame. These guys were scared when I used to get on that court. And I took advantage of that because I smelled the fear. I just took advantage of it. I'm like, oh, you scared. I'm going right at you. That's just how it is. When, you know, New York City, you smell blood, you go take it. You know what I'm saying? So that's, it, it, it was easy because I put the work in, but I don't look at it that it was easy. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you were an underrated passer. Obviously, you could score. Obviously, you could rebound as a guard. You had the makeup of of being a, a huge talent at the next level. And an, weirdly enough, you know, draft night came and the phone didn't ring. And your NBA journey started locally. You know, we started with Boston. Uh, you had a stint over with Golden State, brought it back to New Jersey, the New Jersey Nets before they were over in Brooklyn. Can you tell us what it was like not to get that phone call that night and then to start your NBA journey with the chip on your shoulder? Well, it was a lot of political reasons that I didn't get drafted, uh, which I I didn't know at the time because I was in in it. But, you know, like a year later, I, fig- I kind of figured out what was going on a year or two later. So I, I accept what happened and I had to keep moving forward. Just plain and simple. Uh, it was a devastating night. Um, I thought I was going to be picked, you know, top 13 because that's where I was uh, projected. But it just didn't happen. But so what I did after the draft, I just worked my butt off. I wasn't living in Coney Island at the time. I was living, you know, another side of Brooklyn. So I just went there. I went back to my roots. I started running the beach. I started running the stairs. Started doing some drills on the court, and I got that energy that I needed from Coney Allen. And then, you know, I just tried to make things happen for myself. You know, I felt like I didn't have anyone at the time, so I just had to go in there and put the work. So I put the work in. Um, I got my first call up to Boston, uh, which was uh, that was that was a good experience. You know, I played with some some really good guys, especially uh, guys like Kenny Anderson, who I looked up to when I was younger. Um, that, you know, that didn't happen. That didn't work out for too long. Uh, Golden State, I really thought I had this opportunity, Golden State. This was like one of the places that they didn't care about wins or losses. They just go play. We'll figure it out, right? We, we're just trying to find our pieces at the time, Golden State. And I, 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 I was playing well throughout the practice, and then Antoine Jameson broke my nose, so I was out. And then after that, I tried to play with the mask. You know, it worked, but it didn't work. You know, you get out of shape, so you're just not yourself anymore. And um, Jersey, Jersey was a fun experience. Jersey, Jersey was a fun experience. You know, I got to play with my cousin a little bit, uh, Stefan Marbury. Uh, that was a good experience. Uh, Jersey, I, I respect Jersey a lot because um, – after the season was over, I used to bring my little brother Sebastian Telfair with me to Jersey, and he used to work out with the assistant coach, Lawrence Frank, there. So Lawrence Frank used to work both of us out. And this is something special that kids don't get. This kid was about uh, 14 years old working out with an NBA coach, right? So mm-hmm. you know what that does for, you know, for your confidence, playing in high school, like I'm working out with these guys. So I, I, I always uh, appreciate Jersey for that and Lawrence Frank. And um, Portland was my my best experience. Portland was my best experience. Um, 
I, I played with them, but they didn't allow me to play in the playoffs. I was uh, I was pretty frustrated with that. Uh, but I made some good friends over there, and I still keep in contact with, you know, a few guys like, you know, Rasheed Wallace, Fonzie uh, Wells. Like, those are my guys. But uh, that was a great experience. And Portland as well. Like, uh, one – and Tim Gergerich. That's a guy that I keep in contact with now. He's like – he was like one of the best assistant coaches in the NBA. Like, he was the highest paid assistant. And he had a camp after the season was over. He had a camp in Vegas. And, um, you know, I knew, my, I knew my little brother, Sebastian, wants to, he wanted to get in the NBA. There's so much I can show him, but I had to bring him around it. Like, if you want to get here, this is what we do over here. And Tim Gergerich let him go to the camp. This kid is a skinny 15-year-old kid playing against, you know, guys like, you know, Larry Hughes. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, he was he was working at the camp and and Gerg was giving him that confidence that he needed, you know, to to reach that next level. So I had some really good experience. It probably didn't last long, but it was a lot of jewels and gems that helped me and especially helped my little brother. Absolutely. And to just have those connections you brought up, Rasheed Wallace, Bonzi Wells, like, you know, that was a great era of basketball in Portland that you were a part of. And Correct me if I'm wrong. You scored the last points on the old Boston Garden parquet, correct? That was me, buddy. That was me. <laughs> that that beautiful floor. Remember that floor? Absolutely. That Absolutely. I yeah, I I remember it like it was yesterday and that's a very cool thing to say you were a part of. So, transitioning to your career overseas, would love to know where you enjoyed balling the most overseas because you had a long career overseas between Italy, Greece, Turkey, a lot of cool places. You know, where did you enjoy balling the most? You know, I'm sure you went off for a lot of 30 and 40 point games out there. You know, tell us what it was like balling overseas. Oh, man. Uh, uh, in the beginning, my, my first step, my, my first stop was uh, Biella, Italy. I went over there. I didn't like it. Felt you know, in my head that I didn't belong there. Like, you know, I'm, uh, all right, all right, let's, let's see what we can get out of this. Right. So it took me about three to four weeks to get adjusted over there. But once I got adjusted, it became like the best experience of my life. Like Biela was the best place I played in, in Europe, maybe because it was my first and I'm trying to figure things out. But, uh, yeah, like I took a team that was, just came from the second division over there to the first division and to the playoffs. So that was a really good experience for myself. And I went, I went back later on, like, you know, five years later, I went back to play on the same team. So Italy was my, my best experience. You know, uh, at the time I, I led the country in scoring in Italy. I led the country in scoring in Greece. So I, I put up some big numbers over there and I, I worked my butt off. And, you, you know, you, you play with a few Americans on each team. It's not like it's stacked like the NBA. So it's only like three or four Americans on the team, right? And then you have some Europeans. And, you know, the Europeans weren't, weren't that athletic. They were pretty slow. But they started advancing as the years went, went by. Well, I think a lot of your success, your determination, your grit, like comes from your background, being from Coney Island, I've been to Coney Island myself. It's a very unique place. I and you know a lot of people from Jersey and Staten Island and Long Island head to Coney Island to you know spend some time, walk the boardwalk, go to the beach. But not a lot of people know the true stories within Coney Island. And you know, I think I'd love for you to share you know parts of your early life and unfortunately the tragic story of your mother. 
um, when you were four years old, you know, how that kind of shaped who you are and, you know, the determined successful man you became. Well, you know, uh, a lot of people, when they, when they think of Coney Allen or they see Coney Allen, they, they think the ballwalk Nathan's and the amusement park. Right. But uh, Coney Allen was a, it was a rough, rough place. Right. I, I obviously I grew up in a, the crack academic, you know what I'm saying? So the the gun violence and it was it was just a lot to navigate through so you don't get caught in those traps. So uh yeah at an early age I, I lost my mom to uh to gun violence um from you know from from her partner right so um uh, you know he killed her he killed her then he killed himself so um that's why this this image of me as a you know a kid it's it's so important, right? So, so you know, at the time you just you just script from everything. You got to try to figure things out. You know, even though I had my aunt, she took me in, who who's uh, Sebastian's mother. You know, I she took me in when I was four years old, and um, she had four kids of her own already, and then as time went on. It was a uh, a family of ten of us, ten siblings. You know what I'm saying? So it was five. I had five brothers and four sisters, and we're living living in a three bedroom apartment on welfare, right? But me as a kid, you don't understand the the, the economics situation back then. You know, I know it, we always had food on the table. Probably wasn't much, but we had it. She made it work, right? Uh, we had a bed to sleep in, but we, we had a king size bed. I can laugh at this now. We had a king size bed, uh, and it was seven of us sleeping in one king size bed <laughs> at one time. But uh, those are the struggles, and those are the the situations that you you go through, and you tell your your older self, your or your teenage self, like, I don't want to be in that situation anymore. So. Um, uh, 13 years old. Um, uh, I'm gonna share a story. I met my mentor, Mr. Lou, who, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was selling drugs at the time, 13 years old. Right. And my first love was baseball. So I was on a baseball court playing baseball, you know, kind of by myself, throwing the ball up and hitting. It, right. So my mentor came to me. He was like, son, what you want to do? You want to play basketball or baseball? I was like, I don't know. I was, you know, confused kid trying to figure things out. So he, he brought me over to the basketball court and he started doing drills with me. Right. And from there, I left baseball alone and just came became in love with basketball. So I'm going to share a story that nobody, nobody knows the story. So I used to when I was 11 years old, I used to go to Stefan's games. My cousin Stefan, he played since he was two years old. He was a. He's just a phenom, right? So I used to go to his games. He played for Flames. So Flames, that's a, a you know, AU uh, organization by Coney Allen. So he tried to get me to go play for Flames when I was 13 years old. But I'm seven months older than him, right? So he's 12, I'm 13. And I try to lie about my age so I can play on the same team as him, right? And then he... I made the team. I was on CYO. That's like the varsity division, right? Mm -hmm. So I made the team. Then they figured out my age. 
So he's like, no, you're 13 years old. We just got your uh, your birth certificate. I was like, yeah, I'm 13. Yeah. So they put me on with the 13-year-old team, took me off the 12-year-old team. And then the 13-year-old team, they put me on like the JV. It's called House League. And I said, I'm not playing on House League. So I didn't play. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't play organized basketball until high school. Wow. Yeah, I didn't play organized basketball until high school. I mean, I'm, I mean, I played in Coney Island. Yeah. I played on the streets. But, yeah, I was like, I'm not playing. I'm not playing on no JV. Like, I felt that was too good for that. And I haven't really picked up a ball. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, but um, I started playing at Lincoln when I was 15 years old. And I didn't play my freshman year. I played my freshman year at Lincoln. I played 30 seconds. I played 30 seconds my freshman year. Wow. <laughs> my, yeah. And my, my sophomore year at Lincoln, uh, I became a starter because all the seniors left. Everybody left. So he had to throw me out there, just throw right right in the fire. Just throw me right. Go ahead. Figure it out. And I figured it out. I figured it out. You, you sure did. And yes. for those who don't know, Lincoln High School one of the most historic, if not the most historic basketball programs in New York City. When we had Sham on the show, he talked about the culture of, of New York when he moved from Brooklyn to Harlem. And he talked about the culture of like celebrities going to basketball games in high school and the guys that he matched up against. If you want to talk a little bit more about Lincoln and, and the culture of New York City high school basketball. Man, like, uh, I mean, I was good, but Stefan was the phenom, right? Stefan had... Denzel Washington and Spike Lee go to the games. Like, you know, I'm I'm right there. I'm hooping with you know with him. You know what I'm saying? So so when you see that, it's like there's only one thing to do is to perform. Right. So, you know, I get a few dunks and I'm looking at Spike and Denzel on the baseline, like, yeah, I'm here too. So just, you know, but uh the celebrities, you know, my little brother had he had Jay-Z go to his games, he had uh, Steve Stout, he had Derek Jeter, you know, he, my, my little brother just, he probably had more celebrities at a basketball game than any other New Yorker that played in high school. Yeah. But, um, I mean, the New York culture, as far as we had some great players and I will have to be honest, I was starstruck my sophomore year to see this one individual play because he had all the hype around the city after Kenny Anderson left was Felipe Lopez. Absolutely. Felipe Lopez was God out there. I was like, Oh my God, this guy used to just get 30 by accident and it was effortlessly. And it, but he used to work out. Like he, he put in a lot of work. You know what I'm saying? He used to work out like, we didn't work out like that. We're like we'll run the stairs, we're on the beach and do calisthenics, but he'll be on the court like doing drills and stuff. But he was phenomenal. Like, you know, he's 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 my culture for my era. You know, it's, it's I would say it's him, Felipe Lopez, uh God Sham God, obviously, my cousin Steph, and I I would say um Charles Jones. Charles Jones was uh he was an assassin. And and when you when you go to street ball, you know you got Ed Booger Smith. Like that's one of the guys that before Sham Guard, before Skip to My Little, this guy was doing stuff that like a musician with the basketball. Like it was 
it was amazing to see, man. It was amazing to see. Like, I love New York City basketball, like, especially during my era and before. Well, again, perfect segue. Let's let's talk about Sebastian for a little bit. One of the most iconic NYC basketball documentaries of all time is Through the Fire. Came out in 2005. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. There is a clip from the documentary where you're in the 4040 club and Sebastian gets drafted and it's just a beautiful, raw, emotional moment where you guys just embrace and you're like, this is your moment. You're getting drafted. You made it happen. You know, I've been there for you through it all, you know, family first. And it's just, I mean, chills. Like, like you can't put it into words. Like, can you talk about like that documentary being a part of that and like that specific moment? Man, the documentary, I will say, I compare through the fire, like Steph Curry, what he is to the game now, right? I will say this, like, nobody was shooting threes like Steph before Steph got into the league. Now everybody's shooting threes. Everybody. Like, from NBA, college level, and high school level. And even, you know, the the younger kids, right? Through the fire, what that movie done for America, I would say it helped a lot of people and hurt a lot of people. Nowadays, you have kids that that's eight, maybe seven, seven, eight, nine years old, they have their own trainer because of Through the Fire. They see me working with Sebastian, like, yeah, this, you got to work, you got to put that work in, you got to wake up at, you know, 5.30 in the morning, work out at six, and you got to put that pain in, put that pain in. So I think Through the Fire kind of hurt the game of basketball a little bit because some of the kids are really not enjoying the game. Like when you're a kid, nine years old, let them go have fun. Let them play, right? Let them figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. Don't be hovering and be all, all the way back and say, do this, do that, and third. Like, you got to let them play. They got to want to like it. You can't force it on them. But as far as the good thing about Through the Fire, it shows the it, it shows a family connection. It shows a, 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 a unbreakable bond, an unbreakable love. And it shows that with hard work and the right information, you can't get it to the top, right? That plain is simple. And that scene, that scene that you're talking about at the 40-40, it was just so emotional because we had to put like a lot of work and people don't understand the work. It wasn't documented and through the fire. They just saw, saw a couple workouts and I was conscious enough back then to not show everything that I was doing with Sebastian. I didn't want that being recorded or putting that on the, you know, on, on a documentary. I, I felt that that's not for everybody to know. Right. So I, I held out a lot of information with that, but Sebastian put a lot of work in from May all the way until August. When I had to leave, he would work out. I would get him up at five 30 workout at six to 7.30 in the morning before school. We used to work out, right? And then later on, he'll come play with me with some some guys that just came home from playing overseas or some guys that just finished playing uh, an NBA or, you know, some college guys. Like, we had those type of runs. And he put in seven hours a day of work. 
seven hours. During school, he put five hours. In the summertime, he put seven hours a day. So people don't understand the work that we put in and actually come to fruition and all come together. Like, yes, you did it, kid. They they say success is like it's a mountaintop. You don't see what's underneath, you only see what's up above. Right. And for Sebastian Telfair, when I was in middle school, everybody had a Sebastian Telfair Minnesota Timberwolves jersey. That yes, was that that was an essential. And it was just great to see in that documentary, you know, you being a part of that and being such a great mentor to him and being such a great brother. And now I want to go back to you really quick in terms of your book and your clothing line. I'm I'm rocking a hat right now. The fans Looks are going to see it. It looks good on me. I love the logo. We were talking about the logo before we started recording. Jamal, tell us first about your book, The Beautiful Struggle. What are some of your favorite passages from it? And, and tell us about the process of how that came together. Um, I always felt that um, my, my, my story would be an inspiration from, you know, where I came from, how I grew up, and what I achieved. So I, I started writing. Uh, you know, it's funny. The John Hawk, the guy that did through the fire, right? The producer of that movie. I called him and I told him, I said, I want to write a book. He said, Well, write it. I was like, I don't know how to start. He said, Just write. And that's what it came about. And I, I think I started that in 2006 or whatever, right? The book came, came out in 2008. Yeah. So I just started writing and he gave me the confidence to just, just do it, right? So, but like I said, I just felt that my story will be an inspiration to a lot of young people out there and, you know, uh, what I had to overcome as far as uh, uh, not having my biological parents uh, raise me, uh, um, all, all, all the work that I had to put in to, to become successful that I am. And I, I felt that could have been even more successful, but things happen in life. And when things happen in life, what you're going to do, you're going to stop, you're going to change careers, or you're going to keep pushing. So that's why I felt that the, the book was important, right? Uh, you know, growing up in Coney Island, uh, New York City, playing basketball, playing at Providence College. And, you know, even, you know, giving people a little bit of information how, about how the NBA works, you know, politically and, you know, and uh, even in, over in Europe. So. That's the thing about the book and how I came up with the title that people don't know is uh, my um, one of the people I looked up to was Biggie Smalls. Right. So he he had an album out called Ready to Die. And I used to listen to it all the time in high school. And one of my favorite songs was Everyday Struggle because I felt it. Right. Everyday Struggle. So I like the song so much. It became part of my title of my book. And my name in Arabic, Jamel, means beautiful. So I just said, you know, the beautiful struggle, there you have it. I guess that was divine, like divine providence. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I love it. And yeah. your story is extremely inspiring. I cannot wait for my listeners who are fans of you already to hear your story and hear everything you have to say, because it's going to make them 10 times more of a fan than they were even before. And nice. like I said, right now, I'm rocking a Jamel NY hat. You can check them out on Instagram, Jamel NY and JamelNY.com. Jamel, tell us about the line. You were featured in Slam. 
Uh, the Slam put out an article about you and your clothing line and how everything came together. But tell our listeners here, tell them what's up about about the clothing line and how, and how they can uh, jump right on in. First, you guys, you know, log on to my website, jamelny.com. Uh, you know, purchase some hoodies. Uh, we got some hats available. Um, so the line came about, I always wanted to be into fashion. You know, you know, I, I just, when, when I was in high school, I used to write on my sneakers. And, and and when I did it, like my neighborhood did it, right? I wear Tommy Hilfiger gear before a lot of people in my neighborhood wear it. And then once I wore it, the neighborhood wore it. Right. So I was I felt like I was a trendsetter when it came to fashion, not high end fashion, you know, like uh, Armani, but just, you know, simple streetwear. Um, so four years ago, I, I wanted to do a clothing line. So I put a whole presentation together in Manhattan and I invited some investors to come and I got an investor. He was like, let's do it. I want to be part of this. So. We've been working on this for four years now, working on this line for four years. We have a, a bunch of collections that are ready. We just have to wait for the time to put them out, right? So now with, with, with Slam, like, I have a relationship with Slam. Uh, I've known the people at Slam Magazine since 94 when they followed us at Lincoln, you know, when they were following stuff on. So I just, you know... Call you know the people over there. I have a connection with them, and and said let's do a story, and and they did a story, and and when they put the story in Slam, like uh, I got a lot of people interested in buying gear from from the website, and we we wanted to to have the the clothes to look like a vintage line. So the hoodies that you see is is more like a is, is vintage. This one is uh more like a, a solid black, but the the first batch of um, the first collection we put out, it was more of a vintage line and people loved the images on the back of the hoodie. It was just phenomenal. I, I just love the response. And right now we have a couple collabs that's coming in the future with some people and you're going to be surprised when you see it. <laughs> Next week is going to be live. Next week we have a collab that's going to be huge. That's going to be live and it's going to be phenomenal. Well, you know I'll be all over that, and my listeners get on that. It's going to be awesome. Um, excited for you to drop that. And Jamel, this has been an amazing episode. I want to finish off on two notes here. I want to talk about first, what was it like to play at the Dunkin' Donuts Center in Providence, and what is your favorite Friar basketball moment of all time? The dunk. I don't know how these kids are doing it today with this. Um at playing at Alumni Hall, right? You prepare, right? You, you prepare all summer to, you know, to play in a, at the dunk, right? So you still at Alumni Hall, like the dunk, like the fans are um, like, literally, like, just like you said, this was, Providence was our NBA team, right? So playing at the dunk, like the fans, like they'll say something, come on, Jamel, come on, you're better than that. Like when you, you hear that, it just you snap out of whatever that you're in and you get that extra boost. Like yeah. these kids, when they, they playing in this this kind of like bubble, like it's it's very tough. Yeah. Like is is this is not normal and it's very tough. And and I applaud them like for just keep pushing forward. But uh the dunk was is nothing like the dunk. Nothing like the dunk. And 
There's nothing like the dunk and there's nothing like the fans. We have fans follow us to uh, UConn games. You have fans that follow us to Pittsburgh games. The fans are unbelievable. And what was the other question again? The other question is, what is your favorite Friar basketball moment of all time? Friar. All right. People probably think it's the Duke game or Mm -hmm. uh, Villanova game when I played at Villanova at my my career at 38. My favorite moment was, to be honest, Coach Gillen, my sophomore year before the Big East tournament, right? Two moments. Um, Midnight Madness, Coach Gillen came out with an army fatigue, like sweatsuit, right? Saying, this year we're going to war. That was a, that was a great moment for me. So I it was like we 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 mean business this year, and you know Coach Gillen, sophisticated uh, gentleman. You know what right. I'm saying? He always you know teaching us like how to dress proper and how to speak well and remember somebody's name. But that was a one of my favorite moments. And then when we were about to go play in the Big East tournament, and we needed those two games to uh, win to go play in the NCAA tournament, he played Frank Sinatra, New York. In practice, I was like, we game got over. it. Game over. The, the, the energy was there. The energy was there. I was like, it's game over. Like, he understands now. He understands. Yeah. And Frankie, you know, New York, New York. <laughs> that was that was great for me. I actually live on the street in Hoboken that Frank Sinatra grew up on. That's right. Frank is from Hoboken. That's right. So, so big fan, and the thought of yeah. seeing Pete Gillen saying that and wearing that is pretty funny to think about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pete, Pete, Pete was a, a unique, he was a unique guy. Well, the man they call Five Thirty. It's yes, been an sir. absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Your story is incredible. It's inspiring. Um, I mean, I mean, you were one of my favorites to start before the show, and now you're probably my all-time favorite after everything you shared. That yeah. was. Absolutely amazing. I love everything you've done. I love the adversity you fought through in your life. And, you know, you're just an all-time great in Friartown. You know, points aside, you're just you're just one of those all-time greats. And and that's why you're in the Hall of Fame. And we can't thank you enough for joining us here today, telling your story, um, you know, sharing some different things with us. And, you know, we're excited to continue to see the, the clothing line grow. And, yes. you know, watch you continue to grow in life. So thank you so much for coming on. And go Friars. I appreciate it, Bill. Thank you very much. Go Friars. Don't forget to go to jamelny.com or follow me on Twitter, Jamel530, or Instagram, Jamel530, or JamelNY. Thanks a lot. Peace. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to episode 11 of the Friar Podcast. And of course, a special thank you to Friar legend, Jamel 530Thomas. We are back again next week. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Friar Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts as well as SoundCloud if you enjoy our content. And as always, go Friars.